Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by J.J. Kimchi. J.J. is a PhD candidate at Harvard University, where he specializes in the intersection between European and Jewish intellectual history during the post-Enlightenment period. J.J. received his undergraduate education at Chalim College, Jerusalem, where he double majored in Western philosophy and Jewish thought. Prior to that, he studied at Yeshivat Har Etzion and completed his military service in the 101st Division of the IDF's Paratroopers Brigade. JJ has taught courses on Jewish thought in a wide array of institutions, including at Harvard, Brandeis, and MIT. His works have been published across a wide array of scholarly and academic platforms. He has ghostwritten two books on Jewish ideas, and his first academic book is due to be published in 2024. JJ is also the host of Torah in Motion's podcast of Jewish ideas. Without further ado, JJ Kimchi. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. It's great to have you back, JJ Kimchi. Facham, JJ Kimchi. Um, at this point, you might have you might have to move in with us because mm-hmm. you know we're doing this right. so much. That it's great. We're really we're getting great feedback from your podcast, and um, we're very excited for this one in particular. Um, we're going to be discussing the Gush Tanakh method. So we want to discuss what particular method are we talking about? If you could provide us with a background of who uses this, where it stems from, and how widespread it is. Okay. Firstly, can I say once again, it's great to be here. I'm a big fan of yours. love what you guys do. Um, I listen to your other stuff, and I'm always happy to be back. And yes, you're right. This is now a third time, and people might be might, might begin to suspect something. So, um, but uh, I hope I hope this is not our last time. And there's many many interesting things to discuss tonight. Um, so let's jump into it. Uh, before we get into discussing what I'm going to discuss tonight, a couple of quick caveats um, just for the audience and and for, for everyone to know. The first thing is that what we're going to be speaking about, I can't claim to be really an expert in it, um, in the sense that I'm a, a consumer of the sorts of writings that get put under the Gushtanach method uh, banner. I uh, um, I've been reading it for many years, and I speak to people about it, etc. But it's not really an area of my research, as it were, uh, and really the area of nobody's particular research. I mean, there's I, I don't know of anyone who's done very serious academic work in this, and therefore this is um, everything I, I will be saying is the words of an enthusiastic amateur rather than someone who's been uh, you know sitting in the libraries and and uh, and swatting up on all this. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is that we're going to be talking about a a school of scholarship, right? And the problem always with talking about a school of scholarship, no matter what it is, um, is that you have to generalize if you're going to say anything coherent. But of course, you will always find scholars in the school who, who sort of um, buck the trend and who don't fit particularly into the boxes in which you're generalizing. And therefore, so I wanted to say this, Mirosh, that, that the things and the generalizations I'm about to make might not encompass every single member of the Gushtanach method. And there's an open question as to whether this particular method um, is in fact a global method or whether there are important differences between the Israel and the American branch. I don't think so, but others do. Um, and therefore, um, you know, so let, let's get into it. But you just attended two, the, the Israel branch, correct? Say again? You attended the Israel branch. Yes. Yeah, so, so I guess my own background is that, yes, I spent two years in the Gush itself. I also lived in the yeshiva, in Yeshiva Haritzion, known as the Gush, um, for, for the year and a half in which I served in, in Sahel. Um, and therefore, you know, I... I have a lot of, uh, obviously, um, you know, many roots there and still keep up with it, their literature and still keep up with the people there. Um, and so therefore, you know, those are my basic qualifications to speak on the matter. But of course, many others have the same qualifications as me. So, you know, I can't I can't claim uh, any superiority on that. Um, so, so, yeah, so this is a method of studying 
uh, and writing about and reading Tanakh that is known colloquially as the Gush Tanakh method because it's associated with the Gush Yeshiva, Yeshiva Haratzion in Alan Shvuz, a, a very large religious Zionist uh, Hezda Yeshiva. Um, it's also associated with the college that's in the Yeshiva, and the sort of the lower levels of the Yeshiva. There's a college called Michlelet Herzog or Herzog College, um, and many of the teachers who teach in Yeshiva Haratzion also teach there, and that's also um, a, a world center of this particular method. Um, in on the American scene, there are uh, this is generally known as the literary theological method. Okay, yeah. and this is this is just something that is, is generally uh, spoken about. Um, but within something that I've observed in the last ten or fifteen years that I've I've been around to observe um, is its spread and its ubiquity within the modern Orthodox religious Zionist world. Right, that uh, really in the last couple of decades you've had the the tremendous success of this way of. Um, of reading the Tanakh, and obviously part of it is the fact that uh, places like Gush and Yeshiva University, where there are some, uh, you know, some important members, some important figures within this within the school, um, they have produced many teachers. Many of these teachers teach in seminaries, they teach in yeshivot, they teach in in high schools, they you know, they teach everywhere. That they are, you know, become pulpit rabbis. They write on popular websites on the the VBM or Alatorah, other such uh, other such websites, and therefore. Um, this has spread. Another very big agent of the spread of this method is Koren Magid Publishing, right? They publish yeah. a lot of books. I just, uh, you know, a couple. So, for example, I'm holding up the camera here. Um, the book um, is slightly blurred, but mm -hmm. this is Yael Ziegler's book uh, yeah. on Ruth, actually a very good book, From Alienation to Monarchy. Again, these sort of these white um, books on uh, of Koren, and they're producing one each part of the Tanakh. Um, so, so within Israel, I mean, I'm just going to throw out some names because it's very possible some of the, uh, uh, the audience would have come across them. In Israel, we're talking about um, people like Rav Yaakov Meidan, one of the Rosh Yeshiva of the Gush, Rav Yoel Ben Nun, uh, Rav Amnon Bazak, um, who, who wrote this excellent book called uh, Ad Hayom Hazeh, uh, which I thought was very good, even if I, you know, don't agree Phenomenal. with it. Yes, I have that. I have the translate, translated version. Translated version, yes. It, yeah. it's, it's an important book to read and also to take issue with in, to some degree, but we'll put that to one side for the moment. Um, and also uh, other names, for example, Jonathan Grossman, Dr. Yoni Grossman, yeah. uh, Marilan, um, and Yael Ziegler, who I just mentioned here. She, she's Elchanan Samet. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, more in the English-speaking world, you have people like Menachem Liebtag, who also teaches very widely. Um, in the United States, you have, uh, you know, Shalom Kami um, from Atlantic University, or Chaim Angel, or you had here Rabbi David Foreman of Aleph Bita uh, the other week, who, who uses sort of a, a version of this method. Um, and these all these scholars constitute, to to a broad degree, this um, this school, which which will be called which generally colloquially known as the Gushtanach method. Although, of course, some of those who some of the people who use it don't. Um, don't belong to the Gush. And one of the most important people, actually, underratedly, who did use this method a lot, um, was Rabbi, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, and of course, his stuff, his uh, conversation, even though it includes, you know, some of his own expertise and his background in philosophy, um, but that was uh, that was something at the very heart of his uh, exegetical, say, process. Um, and because, you know, tens of thousands have read his books and read his covenant conversation, um, so, you know, he was also a very important uh, voice in all this. You asked me a little bit about the historical background to this. And, um, well, I've been giving this some thought, and it seems to me that there are three important processes, historical processes, which are worth noting uh, and must be understood in order to, to sort of contextualize the Gushtanach method before we actually get to the characteristics of the method itself, which I want to outline a bit more in depth later on. So the historical backdrop, um, there are three of them. The first one is, to my mind, the, re the return to Tanakh commentary and Torah commentary in the 19th century. Okay, and let me explain a little bit what I mean. Um, if you look at the history of Torah commentary, so it has um, a, a Torah commentary as we know it, meaning line by line um, um, analysis and, and and mini essays or or, or little comments, um, sort of uh, uh, on the biblical text. So it has basically a beginning date, which was Sadia Gon, who who was the first to write in many of the different genres that we that we're familiar with today, as he wrote his tafsir, his translation, and his uh, and his. Um, 
uh, and his commentary. Uh, and then you you have the development of different schools. You have the different development of the French school with Rashi and Rashbam and Bukhar Shar and development of various, uh, you know, uh, various luminaries in Spain, the Ramban, the Ibn Ezra, etc. Um, and then you have, so, and, and you have sort of a high point in the medieval period, which roughly comes to an end in the in the early 1500s, roughly in the 1500s, uh, where you have Abar Barbanel, who's let's say the last very major um, example, the, the last sort of canonical example of this. And you also have others such as um, um, Ovadio Sforno, and uh, a little bit later on, you have also the Clay Akar, right? Um, and these, the Fram uh, Lungshits, and you have these figures, but then at a, in the, about the 1500s, after the Girush Svarad, and after about, and you know, the rise of, of, uh, of Kabbalah and Tzad, et cetera, you basically have an end to this, to this process, an end to the production of commentaries, which we would consider canonical, which we would consider, you know, major central commentaries at the heart of the um, of the Jewish canon. And we have a few hundred years of very little writing in this regard. Actually, it takes a break, more or less, through the, the through the 1600s, through the 1700s, and through until the mid 1800s. Where suddenly, from the 1840s onwards, you have an explosion of really um, novel and really um, exciting and, and you know, powerful and impactful parashanut, right? So you have Shadal with Hamish Dadel, and you have Rav Shimshur of Hirsch, and you have Talit Tzvi Hash Berlin, the Natsiv, and you have the Malbim, and you have uh, the Ketava HaKabbalah, and later on you have um, uh, um, Hoffman in, in Berlin. And basically you have a series of really important parashanim writing once again on the Torah. In other words, that that in the mid-19th century, due to a variety of factors, due to part, partly the Enlightenment, um, partly to the spread of Jewish texts generally in the in Europe, due partly to the attack on the Tanakh um, by biblical critics, due partly to the secularization, the growing in bourgeoisie and the secularization of Jews in Europe in general, um, you suddenly had a series of very, um, again, very important, very impressive, very multi-talented uh, rabbinic figures, uh, Eliyahu Ben Amazeg, another one, um, who, who are writing, who are not only writing important works on Judaism, but using commentary on the Tanakh as a medium through which to provide a, a Jewish worldview, right? Because that's really what characterized medieval parashanot. Medieval parashanot, you read, um, you know, not all of them, of course, but if you read the great ones from Ban, Ibn Ezra, Abarbanel, these commentaries stand as statements of Jewish philosophy, statements of what Judaism is. Like you can get a whole force on Jewish belief and Jewish practice and Jewish everything by reading these great parashanim. Um, whereas, and again, this sort of took a break, and from the 1840s, 1850s onwards, you suddenly had this explosion again, this, this return to, to commentary on the Tanakh, and specifically commentary on the Torah, as a method through which to explore and discuss and, and, and state Jewish ideas writ large, okay? And this is something very important, you know, perhaps one day, Perhaps one day I'll actually devote a book to this phenomenon. It's actually a very important phenomenon uh, that's sort of gone under, you know, uh, underratedly, um, underratedly important and has gone somewhat unnoticed, uh, certainly within the academic world, and, and should be sort of focused upon more. Um, a part of the modernization of Judaism and certainly rabbinic culture was this return to Tanakh commentary itself. So that's sort of that, that, that's the first point, the first historical process that I want. Then, of course, this continues a little bit into the 20th century, and your figures like, as I said, David Tzvi Hoffman, uh, uh, Chief Rabbi Hertz with the Hertz Chumash. Etc. Etc. And this sort of continues and continues, and then and, and eventually ends up where we are. So that's the first one. The second um, um, historical element is um, is the centrality of Tanakh learning in the Zionist world and specifically the religious Zionist world. Right. So in fact, in, within early Zionism, there was a bit of a, a, a disagreement um, among the early major Zionist thinkers as to whether the Tanakh specifically should be at the center 
of the, you know, should be something that the, the new Jew, sort of the Ivri HaKadash, whether the new Jew ought to be reading the Tanakh and ought to be paying attention to it and ought to, you know, include it, have it on their bookshelf and study it. Um, and basically, you have to develop different schools of thought. So, for example, Achad Ha'am, Ashat Svi Ginsburg, and his pupil Chaim Nachem Bialik, they were among those who loved the Tanakh, who wrote about the Tanakh, who wrote poetry, you know, interweaving the Tanakh and really felt the Tanakh to be, should be the basis of Hebraic thought and culture going forward, uh, and Gershom Shalom and others. Whereas you have on the other, on the other side, Berdachevsky and, and others who basically said, no, 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 we want to get rid of all that. We want to push that, put that all away. But, you, but again, within the Zionist movement, you still had many like Ben-Gurion who really, who really loved the Tanakh. However, the religious Zionist movement as such really got going only after 1967. 467 was very, very small. You showed America Sarab and a little bit surrounding it, but actually it was only after the Six-Day War and only after the conquest of, of Yehudan Shamran and, the, and, and Yerushalayim, et cetera, where suddenly you had this explosion of this new this new um, section of the population, this new type of Judaism, this new sector called religious Zionism with its own schools and its own yeshivot and its own seminaries, its own curricula. And, and Tanakh learning over those decades, over let's say the 70s, 80s, 90s, became at the center of the religious Zionist movement. First, because it distinguished them from the Haredi counterparts, obviously the Haredi world being much more interested in, in rabbinics um, and, and in the Talmud and its commentaries, but also because the Tanakh is the religious but also the cultural and linguistic and historical artifact at the center of the religious zionist worldview right so you're you're walking through Yudan shamran and you know you're you want to be part of the land and develop the land and, and what is what is the book that you whip out you obviously whip out the tanakh and you say you look here is the battle of david hamelech uh, fought in and here is where you know shmuel did this and this you, you know and you you connect yourself to the history of the land through the reading through the study of the tanakh and that became central for the uh, for the educational uh, it's a curriculum, educational ideology of the religious Zionist movement. And again, it was a return to Tanakh, a return to not not just Tanakh through, um, you know, not necessarily through its commentaries, but just, just the very words and the very, you know, the, the basic data, the basic the names and the, and the places and the people. And the, that was what grounded those who were resettling the lands of Israel to the land itself, was, was part of the Tanakh. And that, that assumed of central importance. That's point number two. A third historical um um, sort of context, which I think extremely important, is a development within academic biblical studies as such. Because for many decades, from the mid 19th century onwards, um, or even really from the early 19th century, yeah, from, from the early 19th century onwards, um, much of uh, academic biblical studies, especially in the Germanic lands, was focused mainly on source criticism. What I mean, what I mean by that is, you take the Bible, you take like to the Chumash as a whole, and you try and break it down and see, you know, which which sources are, are in which text. You know, take the first few chapters of, of Bereshit, of Genesis. Okay, what is a J text? What is an E text? What is a P text? You know, uh, um, what are the ideologies, different ideologies of J, E, and P? Where were they situated historically? You know, in 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 which era were they written? In which circumstances? How do they relate to each other? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. However, so it's like a more sophisticated DH. Say again? Documentary hypothesis. So, well, you know, you know, correct, correct. So, uh, so if you had the documentary, that, that was exactly documentary hypothesis. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Documentary hypothesis is actually one of, of several hypotheses that abounded. Then you also had the, the supplementary hypothesis and the, uh, the fragmentary hypothesis. But basically, yes, source, source criticism, in, in other words, finding, slicing down the Tanakh, yes. slicing down the, the Torah into different how, sources. How are the four supposed authors interwoven with, you know, their different... Uh, uh, correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how the different uh, sources, and of course, you know, we know four, but actually, you know, P is made up of, of their various different sources, and, and, and right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, many others posted, many other sources. We know the four sources, because that's the picture from Julian Wellhausen that sort of conquered the world. But, mm -hmm. um, but, but there were many arguments on this. However, in 
Round about the 1970s, 1980s, there became there became a shift within a small part of the biblical um, of the world of biblical studies, which basically start, said, said as follows: Let's leave aside the source questions for a moment, because that's actually very technical and quite boring often, right? And let's look at the Tanakh. Let's look at the books of Tanakh as as we have them, as finished artifacts, okay, as pieces of literature that we have sitting in front of us, and what can we say about them? Right? And, and basically applying the tools of literary analysis, literary criticism to the text that we have in front of us without worrying too much, you know, was this half of the chapter written by this one, this half of the chapter written by that one? No, 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 forget it. Just the book as is, the book of Genesis as is. The book, you know, how does the book of Genesis seek to, uh, to tell its stories? What, what methods does it use? You know, what kinds of themes are there? What kind of, you know, how are parallels used and, and, and leading words and, um, you know, and, and, structure of stories and vocabulary and all the things that go into analyzing, let's say, a text from Plato or Shakespeare or Dostoevsky, whatever it is. Treating it as a real text. It's treating it as a, a text. fragmentary... Correct. Yeah. Treating it as a final text. Now, of course, this is um, this is decidedly more friendly to the um, to, to to the religious world, right? Because the, many in the religious world could say, ah, you know, we also believe it's a finished text and, and you know, trying to find, let's say, um, you know, interesting literary structures and bracelet. Well, you know, that, that's actually not a million miles away from what some of the classic parashanim were doing. Um, and that's something that we can get involved in as well. So, so it was this turn in, um, in academic biblical studies. And I have another book here. The problem is I'm blurred. So I'm sort of trying to show you this here. Um, I don't know if you can see it. It's called The, lit the Literary... Uh, what else? What's it called? Back. Back? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not gonna. His background. Oh, person. it's the oh the literary oh, guide to the oh, Bible. Yep. The literary by, guide to the Bible, uh, edited by Robert Alter and Frank Commode. Um, it was written in the eighties or something, and it's a whole series of essays. Now, uh, exactly on this point, it's a series of essays from different authors on on every book of the Bible. Again, from a literary perspective, but the literary perspective can yield great. Um, Sort of great treasures of of insight, right? Especially to some of the more literarily rich books of the Tanakh. Let's say um, uh, the Book of Ruth or the Book of Samuel or, or the Book of Job. I mean, these, these are these are very finely woven and brilliant works of literature. In addition to being a holy scripture, etc., etc., whatever they can be. Um, one of the main leaders of this was uh, was Robert Alter, uh, and I've had him on my podcast, the, the, the podcast of Jewish Ideas, um, and uh, a very interesting man. He's still sh sharp as anything at the age of eighty eight, um, and um, and really one of the great uh, biblical translators of our age. But it, what's fascinating is if you read his, his he, he you know translated the entire Tanakh with his commentary. The Alter Bible is a phenomenal achievement. But if you read that Tanakh, so. It, on the one hand, it is based on source criticism, and he'll mention it occasionally. But actually, the vast portion of it is noting again the literary qualities and 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 techniques and and structures and and everything used within within these books. And actually, because of that, he will invoke things like midrashim. He'll invoke Ibn Ezra. He loves Ibn Ezra. He'll occasionally invoke Rashi because these people were also noticing this sort of thing. So so within the biblical the the, the world of biblical studies, there was a turn on the part of some figures towards this this literary way of of reading the Tanakh, okay? So those are basically the three, as far as I can tell, to understand the Gush method properly, I would say to, to note that within the 19th century, there was a return in general to commentary and study of Tanakh as the basis for making great statements and you know drawing a, a philosophy of Judaism as such, uh, and also the centrality of the Tanakh in the religious Zionist world and, and you know the, the return to it at the center of the curriculum. And thirdly, the development um, in, in Bible studies among, with, among academics, that opened a door. I wouldn't say that this is mainstream academic biblical studies, and you know a lot of people, a lot of um, biblical scholars nowadays consider this kind of you know just froth on the waves of of a real biblical uh, biblical studies. 
However, um, that definitely opened the door for a more religious way of, um, of, of viewing the text. All right, so let's talk about the Gush method itself. Right, okay. So um, I have outlined three broad characteristics, I believe, uh, of the Gush method. Um, it's funny because I seem to be working in threes. Um, I don't always do that, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice number. We'll, we'll go with that. Three broad, broad characteristics. Um, if anyone wants, I actually wrote an essay about this uh, about seven or eight years ago, which I published in a festrip that was dedicated to my father on his retirement from the rabbinate. Uh, but maybe on the podcast, I can put a link to it for a PDF or something. Right. If anyone wants to read it, um, well, where I outline what I'm saying a bit more. Having said that, it was written about seven or eight years ago. And my opinions have changed a little bit, but you know, um, that's that's what we have. Um, okay, so so main characteristics. So the characteristic number one uh, that I think is most uh, salient within many of the writings, again, generally, generally of this Gush school, is the is the primacy of pshat. Okay, the primacy of the plain text reading of of, of the biblical text, um, and really the so firstly the effort to find out what the pshat is, what makara, like what actually happened, what is you know what is the Torah, what information is there to try, try and understand it, and also to have a direct encounter with the text. In other words, the method of a a gush Tanakh teacher is to first and foremost read thoroughly the, the biblical passage that you're trying to read, the, the book or the chapter, whatever it is, read it properly, thoroughly, notice it, all of it, before you touch a single pirush, right? Before you touch a single midrash. Now, of course, this is very much contrary, let's say, to the uh, more classic Haredi way of doing things that's, that's practiced even till today, uh, which is that you, you learn Chumash with one finger in Rashi, right? Or, or, or one finger on, on the note, the article note to the bottom. Why? Because it's unthinkable to, to read a bunch of psukim without... It's, uh, you know, without the Targum, whichever Targum you use, you know, without Shnayim Yukravecha Targum, right? Whereas the Gush Tanakh no, no, read the Book of Rut as is, just the book surface level. And, and on that surface level, make sense of it. What is it trying to tell you? And because, again, and this is, the, Sharon Karmi called this method the, the literary theological method. This is the point. It's literary and it's theological in the sense that we, we are we are trying to, to find out what's going on, but, but we believe that what is written in the Peshat is is the foundational message of the book. And therefore to find out what is the message that God or the prophet or whatever it was wanted us to know, it, you have to find out what that book is actually saying, right? It is an essential religious thing, not just a literary thing, not just, oh, I want to understand, but no, actually the main message is contained in what the book actually says. And what the book actually says um, um, requires an understanding of the Pshat. Now, now, part of the Gush method is to, to keep to a certain degree this... Um, this this endeavor on the Tanakhi level. What I mean by that is is a phrase that's often invoked by many who use this, which is Hatanach Mufareshat Atzma. Right, the, the the Bible it explains itself, and what that means is, um, and again, this is you know hardly new. It's used by um, similar ideas are used by Chazal and by by the commentaries, which is that Sukim in other places of the Tanakh can shed a great deal of light on um, you know on, on, on you know let's say textual quandary. That you have at the moment, or, or, or something like that, right? So basically, your classic a gush teacher will read the read the passage or read the book, try and understand it as best as possible just from reading that, but also bring in other psukim, other methods, and other ideas from the Tanakh itself, from the biblical books, because that is seen as as the the first port of call in order to try and understand something, right? Now, to be very clear, they aren't against the use of use of pirushim, but that use comes. After you've read it, thought about it, discussed it, asked questions, try to answer it, and it's then let's see. Yeah. Supplement. Exactly. Let's yeah. see what the Ramban says about this. Let's see what uh, you know. See if there are any interesting midrashim that that, that to sort of um, 
open our eyes. And the truth is that if you approach that method and then read the Mepharshim, so you often discover the Mepharshim that, 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 that you've anticipated them, that you've... Right. They like asked, the famous, famously, Gidon with uh, the story of Avraham and uh, the fiery furnace, the Midrash, which we talked about previously on the podcast. That uh, there's an intertextual link between oh, so he, he, Midrash. Oh, the intertextual links everywhere. Let, let me give you a good example, which, which I quite like. So, for example... Um, um, you know, when, when Mordech, with Mordechai and Esther, right? So Esther, they have this whole back and forth um, in whichever chapter, chapter four or whatever it was um, of, of the Megillah of, um, you know, uh, you know, Mordechai says to Esther, you have to go to the king and plead on behalf of your people. And Esther says, no. And then uh, Mordechai says, Alt dami sheikh, et cetera. Right? That, um, you know, salvation will come to the Jews from another place, but you and your, your father's house will be um, annihilated. Your, your father's house will, will, you know, will not live to tell the tale. And, and you know, so so this has been, it's been pointed out, again, by Tish Darahad. So, for instance, reading this in the context of the battle between Shaul and Agag, right? Shaul, the first king of Israel, and Agag, the Amalekite, and basically seeing the Mordechai and Esther story as a second chance of the house of Shaul, because Mordechai, who's, who's uh, Esther's uncle, is shown as, uh, is described as, as Ben Kish Ishimini, right? From the same tribe, and he's also Ben Kish. He's from the line of Shaul, and they're having a sort of a second chance to be able to destroy Amalek in the form of Haman, right? And see, and then you... Agagi, exactly. And then you understand, you and your father's house will be destroyed, meaning if you don't take this chance, then the house of Shaul will have absolutely failed in its mission, and, and basically there's no way back for it, right? And again, this is a, a sort of an intertextual link, but it sheds tremendous light on a sort of a, a broader psychological, political drama that's going on between the protagonists in the book of Esther. Um, so yeah, so that is, so that's sort of characteristic number one is a focus on pshat and a use of of the Tanakh itself, other places in the Tanakh, in order to shed light on the pshat before going into any mafrashim, before going to to any midrashim, which are, which are generally brought in as a sort of a, a post hoc to the analysis that you've already done. Okay, that is point number one. The, point, uh, the second characteristic is very important. Is um, has been expressed by um, by one of the main uh, teachers of Moshe Lichtenstein as Torah Adam. Okay, the, the Torah of man. And in fact, uh, he he expresses it as such in this book here uh, called Hisichati. I love that book. It's an important book. It, it, this is uh, this is the major book of essays by central figures within the Gush Tanakh world, um, sort of se somewhat self-reflecting on their methodology, etc., etc. Um, by the way, it includes sections from a speech given by Aaron Lichtenstein uh, at Stern College in 1962 already saying that we should encourage the use of, of, of literary criticism in our study of the Tanakh, right? So, this, so in a way, he actually anticipates and predates Alter and others who, who only, you know, came into this in the 70s and 80s. And this is a very, very early instantiation. Anyway, that's sort of a piece of trivia as neither here nor there, just uh, thought your audience might enjoy that. But Ramosh um, Lechenstein draws attention to the fact that, that Torah Ta'adam, what I mean by that is that human concerns and human questions and stories about human beings are at the very center of the um, of, of the story right this is the major this is one of the major concerns of the tanakh so you know the tanakh gives us stories after stories about love and hatred about parents and children about birth and death about you know loyalty versus treachery about you know the, the development of various midot and, and you know and, and cycles of chuva in other words it's a it's a very intensely human drama and as such, it should be, it should be studied as such. And and again, 
the literary theological method, if you presume that this is the case, that means that one of the main messages of the text is to be found in the Peshat, but also to be found in the deeply human stories that exist within the Tanakh. Right. So if you st study the, the stories of Yosef and his brothers, for instance, or of Yaakov or of, uh, of David HaMelech, a lot of these are, are not necessarily great religious stories as such. You know, they go places and they fight people and they have conversation. There are many stories, but within those stories are embedded very deep and important religious messages. These are the messages that Tanakh wants us as Jews to have. Right. And again, it's, it's, it's almost an astonishing discovery. In other words, trying to really understand the, the root of the fight between Joseph and his brothers or of... Um, uh, I don't know, pick any other characters in Tanakh, you know, uh, or the fight between Binyamin, the civil war between Binyamin and and, uh, and the rest of Bnei Israel at the end of Shoftim. So, so but, but that is, that human drama is the very center of the Tanakh and therefore the center of the message that Tanakh is trying to get home to us and therefore we must study it and try to understand it. Um, and to, to be honest, there's a little bit of uh, of that in the first Ramban of the Torah, right? Because famously Rashi, the first Rashi on the Torah asks the question, you know, a possibly slightly tongue-in-cheek question, which is why the Torah didn't begin with the first mitzvah in, uh, you know, the first mitzvah given to the Bnei Israel. So why doesn't the Torah begin in, in the middle of uh, chapter, whatever, is 12, 13 of Exodus, right? Why doesn't it do that? Um, and, and Ramban pounces on Rashi immediately and says, what do you mean? Miss out the whole of, of the book of Genesis? You know, with all the stories and all the lessons and all the Masay Avot and all, you know, uh, all the dramas that they're in, these are crucial elements of what the Tanakh is. They're crucial elements of the message that the Tanakh wants to give over to its adherents, right? And that's a central part also of the Jewish method, of, of paying attention to the human drama. Um, and, and one, again, I'll give a brief example of this, again, from the book of Rav Moshe Lichtenstein on, on Moses. He wrote a, a book um, about Moses, first in Hebrew, then it translates to English, uh, Envoy of God, Envoy of His People, I think the subtitle is. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, he, he portrays the, the story of Moshe Rabbeinu you know, in, so he's born in Egypt, grows up in Egypt. When he's in Egypt, you know, he finds um, an Egyptian beating a Jew and he he kills the Egyptian and then runs away to the desert. And basically, Moses Lichtenstein he gives this whole, I think, very brilliant disquisition on, on Moses as basically having given up on, on mankind, giving up on human society. You know, he sees that there's no justice in human society, that he he stops the Egyptian beating the Jew and then therefore he, and, and because of that, he's hunted basically for his life. And so he says, you know, I, I've, I've had it up to here with, with, with human society, I'm going to the desert, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to have this kind of intimate, awesome connection with God by myself, without the dross of human society around to get in the way of me, anyone else. I'm, I'm going to become, you know, a, um, a sort of guru meditating on top of a mountain. mountain. Basically, the whole point of the revelation of the, of the burning bush is to tell him, no, you have to go back. Actually, the, 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 um, the salvation is not to be found in the desert, it's to be found among the people and to liberate the people and give, you know, commandments to the people. And, and that's the whole, and he has, again, I'm obviously not doing justice within the 60 seconds I described it, but I thought it was a quite brilliant way, again, of reading the character of Moshe, of understanding his own inner crisis when being expelled from Egypt, his his rationale for going to the desert and the rationale for calling him back and basically saying, no, actually, Moshe, you've misread the situation and what God wants isn't gurus meditating on top of the mountainside rather it's people who actually he, he, who lead the masses and and uh, and lead them uh, to, to a better place so, so that's another example again Torah to Adam the human story human concerns human lessons and, and stories about human beings being at the very center of, of the Gushtanach method and I think that's important because part of the tendency I think especially in Yeshivot is that we sort of give the characters in Tanakh almost um we, we kind of dehumanize them in a way Yes. If you know what I mean, there's a dehumanization a little bit. And so we kind of like, we're, there's a certain vantage point of like, you know, Moshe can do no wrong. 
Therefore, right. you're already taking a sort of biased angle and not really not really allowing the text to kind of develop his story. You know what I mean? It's almost like you kind of have to, you know, make up. You're whitewashing. Or, you're whitewashing. You're whitewashing. And, and these things are coming from good intention, but it's you're missing so much that right. way. One hundred percent. And this goes back to a debate that, that was really raged more more or less a couple of decades ago in Israel uh, surrounding the phrasal concept of Tanakh Begova Enayim, right? Le learning Tanakh at what they call at eye level and basically treating the major protagonists of the Tanakh, as you say, much more as human beings than as, you know, some sort of angels or some sort of, um, you know, a different breed who can do no wrong. Um, but but that's very important. And really, the, the, funnily enough, the Gush Tanakh method because it's focused on human beings, is much more willing to, 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 to let's say, acknowledge um, part of the tradition. Yeah, to be part of the tradition that acknowledges faults. Because, of course, there are some, for example, Ramban um, has no problem stating that uh, the Avot uh, did, you know, sinned here or that, you know, he's sometimes critical of them. Um, others as well, the Nitziv, others as well, who who have, who have do, do this from time to time. And again, done respectfully and done, you know, with the awareness they are supposed to be religious heroes and role models, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, um, it's, again, much more much more sensitive to the possibility um, that the people were dealing with the human beings, but it's specifically their human trajectories. For example, the, the process of tshuva of Yehuda and Reuven and others in the story of Genesis, like that's part of their greatness. That's part of the religious message um, that, that is at the center of those stories. That's characteristic number two. Characteristic number three, um, and this one has also been uh, the subject of many, many, um, uh, a lot of discussion, also a lot of criticism, is, is, the, is the methodology and what I call methodological omnivorousness, meaning the uh, the tendency to basically make use of any and every method method of analysis that, that you can, right? So uh, many, many uh, sort of um, protagonists of uh, teachers of the Gushtanak method will use, you know, history, uh, philology, archaeology, uh, linguistics, uh, you know, whatever you like, all the possible different methods that are used to to study the text and study the historical appearance and, and you try and make sense of it, um, these appear. If you look at the footnotes of many of these um, many of the texts, you know, they'll, they'll refer to you know, this academic study or this thing in the Israel Museum or or this part of the geography and topography of the land of Israel and this theory about the, uh, you know, the, the place names, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and especially, and this is something I've noted before, especially tools of literary criticism. In other words, um, tools of of looking at a text and noting, okay, what are the, the parallels, uh, the chiastic structures, um, the, the, the main words that accompany each story, what's called the Leitwort in, in, in German, uh, you know, ambiguities, repetitions, all, all the various things that a story does in order to capture the attention of the reader, they will say, ah, this exists in the Tanakh, but again, the literary theological method, it's, it, it exists in the Tanakh in order to capture the reader's attention, for what end? To the end of, you know, understanding the message, the religious message in the text, and therefore that's supposed to, you know, speak to, to, to the adherent, the, the Jew today, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just understanding it for the sake of understanding, it's understanding it for the sake of getting some sort of religious under, uh, message or inspiration or, or um, instruction you know, thousands of years later. Um, you want to come in on this? Uh, forgot what I was going to say. Go well, on. I, I was I was gonna mention I was gonna mention the fact that you know people who are let's say um, adherents of the biblical source criticism method will right. view that as kind of cherry picking because ah, what you're jumping the gun we're okay. gonna get. I want to so, so we'll go get to the critiques because the critiques of the Gush method are very important part of understanding the Gush method itself. Yeah. And and one thing I will say about the the teachers of the of the of this school, and one hundred percent to their credit, is that they're very aware of these criticisms and they speak about them, they write about them, and they acknowledge them and they try and struggle with them because the truth is that there's no 
method of teaching and learning Tanakh, which is which is flawless, which is without its its downsides, without its difficulties. And we're going to get to the advantages and disadvantages in one moment. I just want to lay out the characteristics and then jump in because all all three characteristics that I mentioned now are open to quite serious and scathing critique, which, we, which I want to outline when the time comes. Before you, I remember what I wanted to say. Before you get to the to the critiques, um, this method uh, with all the uh, literary uh, constructs and you know the chiasms and keywords and all that. Um, to say it differently, this would be a very um, sophisticated understanding of Debratoire Bilshom Bnei Adam. Yes. That yes. meaning essentially Debratoire Bilshom Bnei Adam would mean that God, that Hashem made the Torah in a way where it can be looked at from a critical vantage point in order to unearth its its messages. 100%. Let me give you actually a little example, which doesn't come from the Gushtanach method, but it, it's such, it is a brilliant essay. Everyone should read it, um, which is an essay written by a professor of literary criticism called, uh, um, shortly after the Second World War called Eric Orbach, right? So it's a famous, uh, famous essay. Um, it's called Odysseus's Scar, okay? Uh, Odysseus's Scar. And basically, it is a, um, it is a brief comparison of the literary methods used by by um, by Homer, by the great Greek playwright Homer, in his in his uh, work Odyssey, in his epic poem, uh, the, uh, the uh, Odysseus. I, I learned it in Hebrew. That's the problem in Shalem College. I actually can't remember what it's called in English. Um, uh, Odysseus um, and uh, Odysseus and uh, and, the and the book of Christians and the, the Tanakh. What do you say? The Odyssey. The Odyssey. That's the one. Mm. Odyssey. Odysseus is the person. Okay, fine. The problem is, I did my undergrad in Hebrew, and so a lot of a lot of the stuff. Uh, cycles around my head in Hebrew. Um, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so so this is a brilliant essay, and he points out the following, which um, which, which which I thought was very thought provoking, which is that so he talks about an episode in the book of of, of the Odyssey uh, in which so so Odysseus returns to his mansion after or to his kingdom after many decades of wandering, they don't recognize him, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and basically he's he's treated as a guest, and then a nurse basically bathes him and notices a big scar on his leg. And thereby identifies him because only uh, Odysseus had that scar. And and Homer goes into a digression of hundreds of lines describing the hunt in which Odysseus got that scar, right? And and basically shows how Homer uses every description. He never just says Odysseus. He you know the fleet-footed, you know strong-bowed, brave Odysseus, and who describes everything, goes into every protagonist's emotional state and state of mind and and, how, and basically uses enormous amounts of description to describe actually a very simple, um, you know, on a hunter with a boar and, and basically how he got the scar. Whereas in contrast to this too, the story of Akedat Yitzchak, right, in Genesis 22, because that story is such a powerful and poignant story and is told with such unbelievable economy of phrase and economy of expression, right? Mm -hmm. The whole story you, you firstly, you never have any insight whatsoever into the minds of of the protagonists involved. You don't know what Avram was thinking. You don't know what Yitzhak was thinking. You, you don't know the rationale behind why God told him to do what he did. And and you know you just have very almost almost laughably short psukim where it says you know Yitzhak turns to the father, turns to Avram and says you know where's the where's the where's the lamb? Oh God will show us the lamb. You know where's the knife? Here's the knife. Like, you have very brief short uh, uh, psukim. And and basically, the, uh, Erbach's point was, these are two very different ways of telling a story, because the Homeric way of telling the story leaves no room for the for the, for the the reader, for the interpreter, right? It tells you everything you could possibly know. You can't know any more than what's told you, because, because it's filled with detail. Whereas the Akira Yitzchak story is so lacking detail, is so open to interpretation, is so sort of 
uh, invites the reader in in order so that the reader can participate and sort of put themselves in the shoes of the characters of the story and try and imagine, you know, what was Avram thinking? Was Yitzhak thinking, you know, was Avram happy to do this or, or devastated? You know, what was going on here? You know, was he trying to delay it? Was he trying to do it quickly? So there in the world, are... In the um, world of writing, it's called show versus tell. Right? Yes, yes, in, in many ways. Yeah, so, it's so show versus tell. Exactly. Really, it's, it's really showing us. It's not getting into the detail. Yes. And, and of course, that, you know, so so Orbach's interest was purely literary. In other words, just showing, okay, two different very ancient authors from you know, 3,000 years ago who are trying to tell us different stories. But of course, the point is that that analyzing stories from this literary perspective, um, according to, again, the Tanakh Mahal, is literary theological, that it's supposed to give over religious messages. Why is Akira Yitzhak told so sparsely? And what are the, 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 what are the, what are the, the Midrashim, what are the related Midrashim and readers supposed to do and how they're supposed to insert themselves in the story and, and participate in it every year when it's read again on Rosh Hashanah? And um, anyway, that's an example of a literary analysis um, of, of a certain story. But let's uh, let, let's move on. Let's move on to the advantages and disadvantages if, if, you, if that's, uh, that's okay. All right. So the, the advantages of this um, of this system is is quite obvious, and and you know that's why it's spread with such tremendous success. Um, one of them is, I mean, it presents very much a coherence and a unity um, to the Tanakh itself, right? And shows the brilliance behind the Tanakh. Now you had on here a, a couple of months ago Rabbi David Foreman of the Aleph Beta um, you know, website, and and basically that's that's what he does. He his all of his stuff, and it's it's very much. A, a part of the Gush Tanakh world, even if he, if not exactly, but you know, very much um, uh, adjacent to it, uh, basically showing the the intimate, intricate connections between the different stories of the Tanakh and the language and the structures and the, and the characters and this and that, and basically showing how the whole thing fits together so brilliantly and so beautifully, um, and that gives, of course, the the religious you know Jew nowadays a lot of comfort and a lot of um, encouragement. Right, this is the holy book. This is supposed to be telling us and giving us the instruction that we need the religious instruction. And it's nice to know that it is also a phenomenal work of literary genius. Uh, uh, you know, and, and in fact, the more you study it, the more you discover layers upon layers upon layers and layers of, of, of different levels of interconnection and 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 significance, which, um, and again, this is the sort of thing you might expect from a divine text, let's say, or a, or, you know, a, a very important religious text. And therefore the Gushtanach method gives its, gives its readers that very strong, that very strong feeling without resorting to the Mepharshim. Because the problem is you can always use Midrashim and Farshim to sort of plug gaps. But if you're constantly trying to plug holes in the text, um, you know, you, you feel like the Tanakh itself is somewhat um, deficient as, as it stands. Yes. Whereas, no, yes, I'm agreeing. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas the Gush Tanakh method is the exact opposite. No, 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 the Tanakh is incredibly rich and suffused with meaning and, and you know, is constantly playing this game of of drawing in the reader and having them participate in the act of, of exegesis. And, and again, you know, for someone who's hoping for religious meaning from that book, that is extremely encouraging, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it lays, it, uh, it gives us sort of purity and simplicity to the Nakh. It also serves a little bit, and, and uh, you, uh, my foreman mentioned this a little bit as well, um, let's say an implicit rejoinder to um, the biblical critics, right? Because the biblical critics say, look at this, look at this mess. Look at this anthology of different texts from different time periods, different authors, and none of them really fit together very well. And you can clearly see the seams between them. And they're all contradictory. And they're all, you know, they're full of redundancies and full of, you know, different, uh, you know, issues and problems with the text. Whereas the Gushtanach problem comes along, the Gushtanach method comes along and basically says, no, the opposite is actually the case. The case is that it's not full of, uh, you know, difficulties and redundancies. It's actually full of very subtle and very brilliant um sort of uh, uh you know methods or, or, um, or techniques and, and content and and basically something that is sufficient for the religious seeker um to, to gain from 
to a tremendous degree. It is an implicit rejoinder, and that's why Jew, I, I think it's, it spreads so well. It's also spread so well because it is quite sophisticated in the sense, as I mentioned before, that if it is methodologically broad, if it's omnivorous, if it does you know, take a bit from, from uh, history and from linguistics and from archaeology and from um, you know, geography of Israel and from flora and fauna and science and, 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 you know, and literary analysis and, and, and all of that, so, so you feel like you're in this very vast and exciting conversation with many different disciplines who are kind of sewing everything together. And again, that, that is to a large degree intellectually satisfying yeah. um, for, for also, many. It's for, also for, like built on the, on the shoulders of giants. You know, it's, it's really yes. like, like the, the, the fact that we have technology today to find intertextual links, for example, or chiastic structures that didn't exist, you know, hundred years ago, 200 years ago. So that advantage we have today is even, I think that's why it's so popular. Yes, it, that it does play quite well to the yes, you're right to to new discoveries all the time in in, in you know archaeology and history etc. But also new discoveries in the text, but due to um, you know search engines and AI and, and all the things that we can do now with text that we couldn't that would that were incredibly difficult to do back in the days without computers because you had to have someone who knew the entire text backwards and forwards in order to to start to even start doing that. Um, I should okay, I should also <laughs> I should have probably done this at the beginning. Um, but I should, I should make a point that many of the elements, many of the characteristics of the Gush method, you can find elements of in Chazal, find elements of it among the, the Rishonim, among the Akronim. I want to mention that, yes. Yes, correct. So I, 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 this is this is uh, perhaps something I should have mentioned a long time ago. I, it, I'm not claiming that the Gush method is anything, I would say, radically new. It is a synthesis of various things that were there, that have been there all along, but to a much, you know, much sharper and much more self-conscious degree as well. Um, and that's something important. To, something important to mention. Um, um, yes. So, 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 yeah. So, these are the major elements. I think of advantages: the coherence, the implicit rejoinder to political criticism, the um, the kind of the air of sophistication, and and this, to a certain degree, to my mind, is what is behind its. Tremendous spread among the religious Zionist world, among the modern Orthodox world in the United States and in England. Um, and, you know, rabbis are using it, teachers are using it. You have Jonathan Sachs and you have, uh, you know, the Etzion Foundation, the VBM website. You, you have a ton of stuff that, you know, I'll have beat all these things that are using it. Okay. Those are the, those are the advantages. Now, what, what are the critiques that could possibly be leveled against this? And this is obviously, there's a lot. Uh, and again, I want to go through three of them, one to each of the major uh, characteristic dimensions. The first characteristic that I mentioned is is pshat. Okay, the the the, the pursuit of um, pursuit of the pshat level, and the uh, and the major critique to be leveled here is, well, who is to say that understanding the pshat of the psukim is actually the main thing you should be doing? Who's to say that that is the most important that the sort of the level of 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 significance that is most important, right? I'll read you a short passage in the Zohar, actually, uh, which is brought, uh, which is quoted by Ramosh Lechenstein's essay here on, in the book Hisi Chati. Um, I'll first translate it in, uh, I'll, first, I'll first read a little bit of it in um, in uh, in the original Aramaic of the Zohar, because basically there's a part in the Zohar which says that the, the words of the Torah, the words that we have written are merely the garment, right. whereas the actual, um, whereas so, the... Uh, Whereas the actual Kabbalistic meaning, the deep meaning that is again proposed and propounded in the Zohar, that is the real thing. That, that's sort of the goof. That's the the main thing underneath. That's the thing which is enclosed. And of course, the the implication being that that only fools would take a look purely at the garment and not take a look and not focus on what is what is beneath. And and, and you know the, the line here that I want to, to read is um and so I'll explain it afterwards. A high gufa mit labsha bilvushin de inun sfurin de high alma tipshin fools. 
דעלמא לא מסתכלי אלא בהאהבה לבושה, דאיהו ספור דאורייתא, ולא ידאי יתיר, ולא מסתכלי במה דאיהו תחת ההוא לבושה. אינו ידאין יתיר לא מסתכלים בלבושה אלא בגופה, דאיהו תחת ההוא לבושה. That basically, that, 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 according to the Zohar, you do have the surface text, the surface text is nice, it's the Levush, but actually the real, true, deep significance of the text is not to be found, you know, on the surface level, it's actually to be found in the deepest, deepest, you know, substrata of meaning, namely the Kabbalistic um, significance is given to the, the words of the Psukim, and, um, and, um, and, you know, the, which is essentially the interactions between the various spherots and the, the, the four worlds, etc., etc., and, and that for the Kabbalists is the main point, and therefore, stating or, or learning Tanakh as if the main religious messages to be found are to be found on the Peshat level, from the Kabbalistic level, from a Kabbalistic perspective, is, is absolutely wrong, and also, might I add, from the Maimonidean philosophical level, it's also wrong. Uh, to a certain degree, because even though both the Kabbalists and Maimonides would give some degree of, um, of legitimacy to learning the Peshat, but they would say that actually the main meat and potatoes of the main message is to be found in the, the, the deeply submerged wisdom. And for Maimonides, that was, of course, the physics and metaphysics of his time, the neo-Aristotelian philosophy of his time. Yeah. But even then, Maimonides doesn't do violence to the text, whereas Kabbalah well, I... does violence to the text. So we're talking about two completely different right. ways of going about that i'm afraid while i sort of agree with you i sort of agree with you it depends very much who you ask because many would say that for example maimonides depiction of god as not only not having a body but not having emotions that's the maimonidean perspective for some that's doing tremendous violence to the text because the text repeatedly said god gets angry god regrets god does this god does that you know and, and maimonides basically says none of this i don't know if you can call that violence that's more um uh something that doesn't fit within within our sensibilities it has to be worked out listen violence I'm... is when you say the text doesn't mean what it says for no other reason than we right. have a secret tradition so right so so <laughs> I, I understand your point even though i stand by what i said before that that one man's reinterpretation is another man's violence. Uh, it really depends <laughs> on which side you're on. Meaning, you know, it's it, it's a matter at the end of the day of of personal ideological proclivity. But I want to just, if I can, play devil's advocate for a moment, which is that for the Kabbal from the Kabbalistic perspective, there's also another problem with um, with sort of chasing Peshat, which is there are some parts of the Tanakh where the Peshat level seems strange. Okay, what for example, the last third quarter or no i don't know exactly how much of partial vayishlaks but 40 psukim just detailing the the alufay edom the chieftains of edom right. what's that doing there you know in in, in genesis where you have tons and tons and in fact different i remember other places you have a lot a lot of genealogies what's it doing there you know who cares and right. if, you, if you're going to defend everything say pshat level is the most important and that's where you have the religious significance so that's fine when you're talking about akeda yitzchak that's fine when you're talking about you know you, you, there's some very meaty uh, parts to the, to the Tanakh. But also parts of the Tanakh, you're not entirely sure what is going on um, and, and why it's there. And it doesn't seem to have really a good explanation on Peshat level. However, the Kabbalists say, no, you don't understand. The, the chiefs of Edom, the, you know, the Sitra Achra, and this symbolizes that, and this is this Sphira, and, you know, and they, they, they weave a tremendous sort of um, cosmos of, of significance. And if you buy it, if you're willing to swallow that pill, then those parts of the Torah and parts of the Tanakh become very meaningful. In other words, the, another problem with, with chasing the Peshat or centralizing the Peshat is the Peshat doesn't always, at least to us, to our minds in the 21st century, doesn't always 
appear as if it's the most satisfying, these were religiously meaningful um, part of, um, you know, part of the Torah, which it, it, it's a critique. Again, doesn't need to be a devastating one, but it's there. Should be acknowledged. Uh, and it's there. Okay. Um, so that, that, that's, that's point number two. Uh, that's point number one. Sorry. So that's, that's the critique contra the uh, the Pshat. Now there's another critique contra, contra to the Torah Ta'adam. Torah Ta'adam, again, the, the centrality of the human story and the human drama is what I call the historicist critique. Now, historicist critique goes a little bit as follows. It's that, it's that basically to say, let me put it as follows, to say that, that we should be reading the Tanakh and following the human drama sort of presupposes that there are a set of, of human questions or human quandaries which, which are universal and timeless, right? And which were, were present in the Tanakh and could be understood and, and, you know, and wrestled with today, right? So we read the story of Yosef and his brothers and we see, you know, the, 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 the hatred of the brothers and the fratricide and the Ark of Tshuva. And, you know, we can read it, we can understand it, we can take lessons from it. That's the, that's the whole point of it. But that presupposes there is a timeless quality to those stories, which, which can be fully empathized with today, okay? The problem is that the Tanakh took place a long time ago in a very foreign environment, right? It took place over three, you know, between... At the time of the Tanakh, between three and a half and two and a half thousand years ago, give or take, um, that's when it was supposed to have taken place. And, and the assumptions and, and the, the world of that time was just incredibly different, right? Let's take the, the figure of Yaakov, right? The sorts of things that Yaakov goes through in his life are very difficult for us to understand or sympathize with today. The fact that there's brothers willing to kill him over the birthright, you know, marrying two sisters, but the, but the father-in-law switching them out, you know, favoring one child over the other, um, you know, fleeing and 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 basically, you know, when the father-in-law comes in searching for the idols, the one searching the idols, he says, "Oh, whoever has it will kill them because he's the father; he can just do what he likes." You know, the, the, uh, Shimon and Levi killing Shechem. There's all sorts of things going on in the story of Yaakov, which which many would say the tw the reader in the 21st century can't make head or tails of this. Right? Can't make head or tails if the relationship between parents and children are so different. Or the relationships between, let's say, a king and a subject in the 21st century is so different. Or the relationship between family members or, or, um, or you know, the, the religious experience in general of people in the 21st century is so radically different that it's actually sort of fruitless to try and, you know, read the Tanakh and gain exactly the messages that were there 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and are now here today. In other words, the, the argument is that our world is a bit too different. And the truth is that this is a critique that's leveled not just at the Tanakh. So, for example, uh, let's take Shakespeare, right? There are wonderful plays of Shakespeare, and, uh, you know, many works of absolute genius, and some of them do, um, some of them do broach very universal human themes, plays of Shakespeare, but some of them broach the sorts of themes, you know, Henry V, let's say, or, or whatever, which are very difficult for us to understand today, right? The, the, the expectation of a soldier to follow his king to the death, let's say, or, or, or to have the king to have absolute power of life and death of anyone else. And, you know, une uneasy is the head that rests the crown or, or pick out whatever quote you might. Um, these are these are things that actually aren't so readily transferable today, right? And if it's Shakespeare, we can put that to one side. But if the whole point of the Gushtanach method is to to understand the Torah to Adam, to, to tease it out and to to sort of say that those situations and those questions, those quandaries are directly transferable to us three and a half thousand years later, well, that might be asking a little bit too much. Of, of those texts and of those ideas because people change. We we no longer have the relationships between fathers and sons and, and kings and subjects and social and norms change. Yeah. Sorry? Social norms change. Social norms have changed, technology has changed. You know, 
can we can we relate to a world in which in which you know 50% of infants die before the age of 3 or in which one in four women die of childbirth or in which you know people really believed animistic spirits to be alive and really you know sacrificed human children to try and appease God's so the point is so much the tanakh seems so foreign to us that if torah adam is at the very center of your tanakh i tanakh sort of um learning then then maybe you're you're throwing your students into a world which which just doesn't speak to people so well that doesn't have the same assumptions and therefore what are the kinds of lessons we can draw from it and you don't seem very happy forgive me but i i i don't know i don't see it that way from mm -hmm. the standpoint that yes the expression the context the time has its own way of expressing human nature in certain in a certain way at that time, mm -hmm. but human nature is still human nature. Just even if you want to say we have social norms changed, human nature is still being applied. It's just being applied to in a different context. You know, people might not believe in you know, uh, you know, a thousand demons running around around us, but people believe in other superstitions today, maybe more sophisticated than it used to be, but. The ideas are sort of still timeless to me. And another thing also with the Gush method is that a lot of the things that you mentioned is actually they do a great job going into it and, and bringing out what is actually consistent within those stories that we can apply to ourselves today. So right. I don't know about that. You know, so, so the truth is that 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 would have to be the, the response of those who, who are uh, part of the Gush method. In other words, the critique that I leveled, I'm not sure I fully believe in it myself, but 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 you can see where they would be coming from, right? I understand where they're coming from. from. Yes, I can see where you're coming from. Let me let me sort of well, the reason why I called it the historicist critique is because historicism is, I mean, it means various different things actually, depending on the context. One of the things it means is it's a it's a way of reading history which basically says that all people or all you know processes and events are product of their time, right? So you know whatever, Shakespeare was a product of his time and Julius Caesar was a product of his time and Napoleon was a product of the social and economic for and, and you know, uh, religious forces of his time and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Going down, wherever you want, you, you don't have people who stand on their own. Everything's sort of a product of their time. And the historicist critique is, is to say that the stories in the Tanakh, you know, are part of their time, share in a great deal of the assumptions and, and background information of their time. And since things are so radically different in the West, in the 21st century, from the Middle East of, of the, the 10th century BCE, so it's actually very difficult to make the, the, the transposition. And the funny thing is, is that, and this is a little bit underrated, is that the Rambam, the, some of the Rambam's philosophy actually dives into this. The Rambam becomes, in some parts of the guide, and, and even in Mishnah Torah, becomes a bit of an, an amateur historian and anthropologist, right? So, for example, when he talks about, you know, why is there the Isur, why is there the prohibition of cutting off the payouts, of cutting off the, the sort of the corners of the head? Because ancient idolatrous priests used to have shaved heads on the sides, and therefore we can't do that now, right? Or, or similar with the korbanot, similar with the sacrifices, right? You know, there were these sacrificial cults and the Torah sort of participated in it, wasn't so happy Not about there. it, and therefore slowly abolished it, blah, blah. Now, this is actually very interesting and, and, and actually quite um, radical and daring of the Rambam to say something like that, because what he's saying is that this, at least some of them, at least part of the Torah system, is mired in a distinctly ancient Near Eastern milieu. It's, it has a very strong context and, and one cannot understand it without the context, right? In other words, had the Torah been given, let's say, a thousand years later in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or medieval France. So maybe it wouldn't have had the sort of to shave the, the payout or not to do sacrifices because that wouldn't have been relevant to the time. He's also not responding to 
like uh, like archaeological findings where you feel like you have to answer these things. He he just did it on his own. You know, it's like right, his. Right. Well, the truth is, the Rambam was basing it on the best information he had at the time, yeah, which to be honest wasn't very good. But you know, copies in Arabic he had of of ancient. Uh, Babylonian or Greek historians, basically, and, and the sort of very ancient, very sort of um, vague anthropology in the Middle East, and and um, it's actually one of the fascinating things of of what I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. The, some of the Pirushim of the nineteenth century, you know, people like Shadal um, or, or Ben Amozeg or others, they were very in tune to the fact that they were living in a time where a lot of great discoveries were coming out about the ancient Near East, and they tried to to include it within their within their commentary on the Torah because they took this sort of Maimonidean line, which is, hey, as much as the Torah is sort of a you know treated as a timeless document, and, and you know hopefully it's it's uh, it's values, let's say, or it's, it's commandments are timeless. However, there is a, a time bound sort of. A, a contextual element to the Torah, uh, namely the ancient Near Eastern Canaanite, Israelite, uh, 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 you know, or Egyptian or Babylonian context in which it existed. Um, and so anyway, so that would be the nature of that particular critique. Once again, not saying and none of these critiques that I'm saying are, are devastating. What I am saying is that they are they're there. One has to background where I'm trying to, you know, when I I'm saying oh, I'm going to read the story of Yosef and his brothers or Yaakov or whatever, and 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 deduce timeless human. Uh, um, sort of morals and lessons and religious lessons from it, well, you know, maybe you're sort of getting the wrong end of the stick because your world is not the world of someone who, you know, would but, sacrifice his son if God told him to. But even in the examples you gave, okay, so there's the mitzvah of the Peata Rosh and because, you know, the, the, the idolatry, we don't do it. The idea is still timeless within the mitzvah that applies to us very much today in terms of what it's trying to tell us. Sure, it has a context because the Torah has to start, the vision of the Torah has to start where it is, mm -hmm. right? That's the only way to get people out of idolatrous thinking is to work within the confines of the context that the Torah began with. That doesn't mean that the ideas are not relevant anymore. Um, maybe the, the the specific act, okay, could have been different or not. You know, the the, the specific uh, mitzvah or, or isul, right? Because it's, based on a specific context was done a certain way right and maybe could have been done differently if not like you said but the idea in itself of removing ourselves from all idolatry very much alive and strong the idea still carries over so i, I agree it doesn't these bother all, me so much these are all these are all very i would say good counter arguments and and because look because I'm sort of on the side of the Gush Medet. again, I have my my reservations with it, and I think it's perfect, blah blah. But but the truth is that you know there are, I think, reasonable responses to some of these criticisms. But uh, but but you, I would hope that you admit at least a little bit the force of some of these criticisms. That <laughs> the world of the Torah isn't always an easy world for us to jump into or to understand. I mean, you know, this comes to this certainly comes to a fore. You know, in the, in the stories of let's say Yoshua and Shoftim, where battles ensue and people just massacre entire cities left, right, and center. I mean, even cities within Israel, or even you know, uh, it's just it, it's the sort of world where that thing would happen. Where if you're going up against a neighbor, you do in fact wipe them entirely off the face of the earth. It's just something that d difficult for us to get ourselves into that mindset. Modern sensibilities don't really uh, modern sensibilities, yes, and and just different assumptions about what is what is even conceivable, like what is on our radar. Club, um, is I think different. The, the, so, so that's that's critique number two. So that is that is the historicist critique, which which goes against the the idea of Torah to Adam. The, the problem of of centralizing Torah to Adam is is that. And the third critique is one that you mentioned, uh, uh, Ben, earlier. Um, you know, against the 
I would say, methodological eclecticism of the Gushtanach method is um, is the obvious academic critique, right? Which is that you can't pick and choose. You can't pick and choose. You're, you're not allowed to to plunder different um, different uh, disciplines in search of of things that you already uh, in search of of a um, of a conclusion that you decided beforehand, right? It has, to, words, fit it has to fit your narrative. So. Yeah, so yes, exactly. To me, this is the strongest. Uh, I'm, I'm saying all the arguments are important. But it's only strong if you're looking at it as whether something is uh, evidence versus non-evidence. Can you consider this enough evidence or not evidence? Right. But when you're using it as supportive evidence, people do that all the time. So let, let him explain what, what yeah, it is. Yes, but okay, so here's the problem. The, pro the problem basically is, is that either when you're approaching academic discipline, either you submit yourself to the um to, to, to sort of to the methods and the findings of a certain discipline or you don't right in other words if you're in the Haredi position you say I don't I don't care what historians say Hist historians ancient history is nonsense archaeology is just what they happen to find on a Tuesday when they once dug at the thing they've actually no idea how ancient civilizations really look like in any way half of them are, are crooked or anti-religious anyway and whatever I'm just gonna ignore archaeology I'm gonna ignore history linguistics as well very speculative who knows how they really spoke who knows where really the lexical origins of origins of various words are from and therefore you know I'm gonna push it to one side so that is in a funny way a sort of um, an internally coherent way of approaching the world, right? You're saying this discipline is trafe. I'm not going to touch it. It's nonsense. It contravenes what I believe to be true. And therefore I'm going to dismiss it entirely. Or the other way of approaching the world is saying, listen, I believe that history and historians are, uh, you know, are, are doing serious work and based on good evidence and, you know, and, and the, the archaeologists and the linguists. And therefore I'm going to follow wherever the archaeological and historical evidence is strongest, leads us best, uh, you know, with the reasonable caveat that, you know, historians sometimes get it wrong and archaeologists sometimes get it wrong, but basically submit yourself to the proposition that all academics submit themselves to, which is that I'm going to start with the premises of the discipline. I'm going to follow wherever the evidence leads. My conclusions will simply be whether, whether, where the evidence currently leads us, right? Whereas the Gushtanach, those who follow the Gushtanach method, and again, generalizing, but the ethos of that method is that we have a prefabricated view of what this book is. The Tanakh, or this library, this anthology is, this is divine word. It is historically accurate. It is, um, you know, it, it is what it says it is, essentially. And if I can find, you know, a good artifact in the Israel Museum, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it in. If I can find, you know, an archaeological find, which is very much to my liking, oh, I'll bring that in. If I can find, uh, you know, a, a clever piece of linguistic uh, play, then, oh, you know, I'm going to bring that in. I'm going to basically take from all the discoveries that I've had and, and use it towards my prefabricating conclusions. Whereas the, the academics says, listen, you can't do that, buddy. You either, you take history seriously or you don't. If you take it seriously, then you must say, listen, this is the evidence that we have. And the evidence that we have, let's say, Nagid points to... Um, um, you know, for example, one important theory, I mean, it is one theory of many, but one strong theory uh, among um, ancient historians in Israel is that there was no massive influx of people at any time. Otherwise, it denies the Exodus narrative. It simply says that, you know, that you, that we don't have any evidence of this massive influx. All we have is evidence of a of a slow incremental growth of, of indigenous people in the land of Israel. And that's and, and that's basically how the people of Israel came to be. This whole idea of a massive influx of people coming from the outside, that would leave evidence, we don't have the evidence, et cetera. Now, if you're a gush or, or basically a religious Jew, you'll say, okay, that's nice that, that the historians don't have the evidence now, but uh, the truth is that I believe in something else. I believe what the Tanakh says is true, and I believe in the Exodus, there was a huge influx of Jews, and, and that's just it. I'm not interested absence in- the evidence is not evidence of absence. Right, exactly. Not, we'll that's the point though, since there's no actual evidence one way or another, 
Well, no, then what exactly easy. are you? I'm supposed to be a hundred percent loyal to a system that doesn't have all the answers. No, from an academic perspective. Not, so, for example, let's say I'll I'll try to give an example. Maybe yeah, go ahead. But one one academic, you know, I would say unanimous academics understanding of of the Bible would say that Judaism evolved from a monolatrous kind of uh, belief in God. Well, because they'll base it on archaeological findings of but statues of different gods. You're right. But he's. I'm trying to explain okay. what the critique is. Okay. Whether we obviously we don't agree with all of it, but at the same time, then we'll we'll say that you know we'll 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 focus on the Moshe's name as you know coming from an Egyptian name because it's 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 from Moses and I don't Moses. see a problem with that. I don't see. It's not about seeing a problem. <laughs> I don't. What yeah. I'm trying to say is, is that they're also theorizing. They're also, it, it's not a science. And I don't see, what I'm trying to say is, if you had clear proof, clear right. proof. Oh, by the way, JJ, we lost you. You there? Huh? I'm oh, here. Your, your screen is frozen. Oh, you're still there. Okay. I'm oh. here. My screen is frozen. I'm terribly sorry. Let me try and turn my camera off and on again. One second. Oh, hi. Oh, okay. There you go. My apologies. Okay. Maybe I was. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding. It could be. Um, but in order to critique against, look, if you follow, if you follow this discovery of mine, you got to follow everything I say. That would mean that what that person says has to have been fully proven true and that he's not actually theorizing about anything. He's taking certain evidence that he's found and then he's putting his own spin or his own, his own dialect around his findings. But mm -hmm. is that a fact? What he, his theory, his theories are not facts towards what he finds. I agree with that. So why can't they say, also use that for their theory? So I'm trying to I agree with you, but what he would say is, okay, I have my I have my theories based on the evidence that we have. If you want to counter it, if you want to um you know prove it wrong, then prove it wrong within the boundaries of our discipline, within the boundaries of history. In other words, come at me with alternative historically based uh, uh, theories based on your own archaeology or based on your based on your own linguistics or based on your own findings, whatever it is. Don't come to me and say, I have a religious tradition yeah. that, that contravenes it. Because again, it, the academic might not even get angry with you. They're just saying you're playing a different game. And if you're playing a different game, don't come into my game and borrow things from my game. If you want to play your game, be the Haredi guy and play your game. But don't don't borrow from, from me because I'm playing my own game. If you want to come into my thing, fair enough. But respect my rules. Okay. Respect my and that's that's again the now. Again, it's 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 a it's a good critique, but it's not absolutely a knockdown critique. Uh, because again, you, you could well there are various ways of, of countering. One of them is to point out again the the essential, um, not tendentious, but but a precariousness of the precarity of some of these of some of these uh, uh, ancient disciplines. Right? What do we know really about archaeology? What do we know really about ancient exactly. history? That was my point. We're still discovering things all the time, and that, that's not an unreasonable thing to say. Uh, but nonetheless, there you know, there's minimalist, there's maximalist, there's so many different approaches. We're yeah, talking about a yeah. field that is so it's still developing, and we have within the field itself there's such a split, like you said, minimalist, maximalist. Yeah. To, to now tell, it's just weird to me, like that you're basically saying that. You have to you you have to take a certain sector of how this discipline has been unearthed, and you have to give it full legitimacy in order to borrow any idea out of it, in order to use as supporting evidence towards your own theory. To me, that's a little bit much. But that's I mean, it, it, it. I understand where you're coming from, but um, you know, you know, I uh, 
Look, again, this is a point I think uh, made by James Kugel, which was recorded in an essay by Tamar Ross, where he basically says, look, it's very nice, you know, uh, religious uh, Bible scholars like this, like using sometimes Ugaritic or, or um, Akkadian or other languages to, um, to to shed light, to illuminate what Hebrew words mean, right? So an, an excellent example of this is, um, is you know, the famous um, phrase, Im Yerushalayim tishkach yimini, right? If we forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget, right? It's a bit of an awkward phrase translated in English, forget what? So the King James, my right hand forget it's cunning or something like that. But but actually, apparently, so I've been told, uh, according to, I think, one of these ancient languages, Ugaritic or something, um, the word thakach, the, the sort of the verb, means to wither, right? It's a pun, meaning if I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand shakach, in that case, may my right hand wither, may it just sort of fall, like fall limp, basically. Um, and that's how it's actually translated in some modern Bibles. And, and that's sort of a more satisfactory thing. And again, this is the, this is a way of using, you know, an external discipline. However, if you go to an ancient linguist and say, ah, you see, I'm, I'm just borrowing, a few, I'm borrowing some parts of your lexicon to... Um, to, show, to, to you know, to base what I'm uh, to what I'm saying, they'll say, "Oh, well, I assume you'll turn the page in the lexicon and see what what uh, is the academic consensus on, on, let's say, the origins of the word Ivri, uh, you know, and where the Ivrim come from, and, and what and the implications of that on Jewish history." And you'll say, "No, I don't fancy turning the page of that lexicon. Thank you very much. I'm just going to use page twenty and not page twenty-one." It, it's it's you're right, you're right, but again, you might not be very happy with you. You'll say, "Stop using my lexicon." If they were more disciplined about their discipline, I'd I'd appreciate that argument more. But when you have, you know, it's not like it's not like biblical criticism is like uniform in the way it thinks. We have such a spectrum over here. You know what I mean? Neither is rabbinics. Neither is rabbinics. That's yeah. why there's well, the Gush method is is not necessarily rabbinics, right? Mm -hmm. It it allows for its own to for its own uh, interpretation to be put in. What I'm trying to say is though, is that the discipline itself is is heavily argued yeah. in terms of its content in its within its own school. So yeah, no, I, I would agree to a certain degree with that. Look, that's definitely true with regards to to source criticism. Because so, yeah. at the moment, the, the picture of source criticism is actually quite a grim one. In other words, there's enormous amounts of disagreement um, among the various scholars. Whereas something more like let's say archaeology or, or um, sort of ancient archaeology, uh, but then again, that's then, a little bit more. Then again, then again, with archaeology it's hard to take a text like the Torah and to try to fit it in exactly with archaeology because what exa how exactly do we even understand what the is the Torah completely a historical text? We don't wow. know. Okay, so, 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 so we're not even... So there's a can of worms that, that I haven't... Okay, had. I'm not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But, I didn't mean it. Maybe in a but, future time we can discuss that because that, that's... That's that's an important point as well. But that's what I'm saying. It doesn't necessarily have to disagree. That's what yeah, I'm yeah. trying to say. Oh, it, no, no, not at all. But, but that's part of the thing is that is that the Gush, the, the advantage of the Gushtanach method is now turned on its head because one advantage of the Gushtanach method is it does use these external disciplines. Like I want to talk about a battle that happens. I can say, hey, guess what? They actually dug up this battle. Um, you know, and, and we have evidence of, you know, the kind of tools they used and we had the kind of, you know, the, the Quran are now putting out these um, these volumes of Tanakh Eretz Yisrael or whatever it's called exactly where, you know, all sorts of artifacts and all sorts of things have been done. You know, the discipline of archaeology, in some respects and and in some ways, is fantastic for the study of the Bible. And actually, we'd be fools to ignore it because, hey, you know, they've dug up some phenomenal things, um, and and you know, they've they've shed incredible light on ancient Israelite um, uh, civilization and and what it was fighting against, etc. Um, however, it, it's opening a Pandora's box. I think that's the best way of putting this criticism. You open the Pandora's box, and that is hard, and you can't shut it from there. So. So, so just to, to, to reiterate, the 
the three characteristics are the centralization of pshat or the focus on pshat as, as the main locus of of um, uh, of content and of, of religious messages, uh, the centralization of Torah to Adam, the human concerns, and the, the methodological um, omnivorousness or eclecticism uh, within the heart of the uh, of the Gush method, uh, and the critiques of each one. And the critique of the Torah, uh, of the Pshat is, you know, maybe Pshat is not all that cracked up to be, and maybe actually there are deeper levels of meaning which should really be focused on, and only, according to the Zohar, only a fool would uh, focus on Pshat. Um, and who's to say that Pshat is so satisfying anyway? Um, and of course, the Torah to Adam, well, is the historicist critique, well, maybe the Adam we're talking about three and a half thousand years ago is difficult to, to talk about, difficult to read about, difficult to transpose neatly into the three millennia later. Um, and, and finally, which is the, the methodological point, which is that, okay, if you're opening a Pandora's box, and, and if you're not going to be consistent, then maybe you shouldn't do it at all. That is my reading, the map of Fair the Gush. And, and I will say to the to the listeners and to the to the audience who are um who are listening to this, which is that as I said before, I'm merely a an enthusiastic amateur analyst of this thing. And I'd be very pleased indeed if there are any um, you know, if any of you have, have different readings or different understandings of what this method is, or maybe I've missed something out, or maybe I've overstated something or understated something, I'd be very happy. Um, because again, I want to understand this phenomenon as best as I can. And I don't believe that my reading is necessarily superior to anyone else's. Um, and therefore, you know, please, please do come at me with, uh, with, with anything you want. And the second thing, and, and, you know, with this, I sort of, I guess I'll finish my piece is that if anyone who, who understands Hebrew, there is a wonderful, um, series of videos that Yeshiva Haratzion puts out every week, which is called Chidush Mehagush, okay? And it is, Chidush yeah. Mehagush is, is two scholars of the Gush, namely Rav Yaakov Meidan and Rav Amnon Bazak, sitting together and for about five or ten minutes just discussing the Parsha. Um, and, and they have, they've been doing this for a few years, they have a few of these little videos on each Parsha. Um, so you put, you know, Chidush Mehagush Bayachi or Shemot or whatever it is. Um, and 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 it is in those discussions that you'll see some you know the, the Gush method as sort of in action as they're talking about it, as they're discussing and you'll see what are they interested in discussing and and how do they reach their conclusions what is considered a good piece of data and what isn't um, et cetera et cetera and um, you know I mean if you have the Hebrew it's it's just a wonderful experience a great way to prepare for for the parsha anyway um, and uh, and also to my mind the best way to see this sort of in action. Um, um, as it's developing. So um, again, Chidush Mehagush, I would recommend to all who who can. And um, yeah, I think that's... I think that's, that was a really amazing break. It's almost like we, we watched you play chess against yourself. You really just, uh, you know, you, you showed... You pulled the Shadal. Yeah, you pulled the Shadal. Yes, <laughs> yes. You pulled the Shadal. Exactly. exactly. And, 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 and honestly, it's very important because, you know, in this century especially, we're, we're, we need to know what we're up against and we need to also be intellectually honest Mm -hmm. and understanding or that like there are shortcomings to every single method and yeah. it's okay sometimes we don't have an answer we're digging we're looking um i think that obviously we didn't respond we didn't really critique the critiques like for example the kabbalah point that you brought up but again these are things that we've discussed on other episodes i think rabbi foreman for anybody who uh wants to understand the response against uh, biblical criticism check out that episode that we did yes absolutely foreman and uh, you know i think this was an amazing breakdown really enjoyable fantastic and by the way the reason why i was i was good. chiming in over there is because i'm very passionate about this as you could tell yeah. it's, a, good. it's a good thing and, to be and, passionate about good and, and if and if someone reaches out to you maybe who has you know another take on this or, or critiques of the critiques as you said or, or something else you know this is this is very much a conversation worth having i, I, I fully agree so, yeah go ahead you were going to say something no no yeah, I was gonna just ask you, um, what is what do you think the future of this is? Because we're noticing actually, um, th there's like a shift it's right exploding. now. It's exploding. Like you go to 
you go to any farm store and they have like a whole, the front, the, the window section is all like, you know, the, the Magid studies on Tanakh. And best series ever we created. love it. I mean, we're trying best to, series ever created. We, 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 we're trying to, <laughs> you know, we want to eventually interview every single author if we can. Right. Uh, we've interviewed a few of them already. And, uh, you know, I, I'm seeing that there's people are a lot like even these conversations that we had in the past about like rationalism versus mysticism and all that there. I think a lot of it is just like part of that same um, fervor for, you know, um, it's it's kind of, there, there's some I don't know if you if you agree with me on that, but I feel like people are more interested in in um, getting to the fundamentals. And they were maybe 20 years ago. I don't remember anyone talking about the Rambam 20 years ago. I don't remember people talking about, you know, um, intertextuality. I never heard that phrase growing up, you know, so, I, look, I, I 100% agree with you. There's a growing thirst for this stuff. One hundred percent. I will say that that certainly the the Koran Magid thing, this whole Gush method, a lot of it is down to the the vision of of Matthew Miller, who's the owner and and uh, the director of of um of Magid Press. Of uh, anyone who knows him, he's a very sort of, I mean, he's a great guy, but very um you know, he has a vision and he really follows through with it. And basically, he's 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 brought this from this kind of fringe yeshiva approach you know a few scholars approach to you know if you put it in really attractive books and you know and, and make sure the high quality uh, and and edited very well etc and then put them on everyone's bookshelf and the same with the steins out such as basically everything the Magid are doing um it's really in a funny way creating almost a a a, 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 a Magid and Koran have created a kind of space for modern orthodox communities to be their own community because i don't know if you remember this growing up in modern orthodox shuls all the sidurim were art scroll and all the Chumashim are Atzker, right? But which is a Haredi thing, right? And basically, you sort of you imbibe that growing up. I mean, some had hurts or whatever, but but basically, they dominated. Whereas because of this new part of the publishing industry, so so you have you know modern orthodoxy is creating its own uh, Tanakh method, it has its own Chumashim, its own Shas now the Steinzars thing. It has its own Sidurim for Yom Atzmo Yom Yerushalayim. I don't know if you've seen this. Like it has its own Machzorim with the Jonathan Sachs uh, introductions, and and it's really. It's, it's carving out for itself its own niche. Now, regarding the future of it, I think the Tanakh, the Gush Tanakh method will always remain unsatisfying to some. It will always remain a little bit too daring and a little bit too modern for some. On out the of the box. It's, a little bit out of the box. Yeah, yeah. It's too out of the box. It's too, uh, leaves too much up to personal creativity and, and to sort of um, innovation. And innovation is something that a lot of people don't like nowadays. And therefore, it will always not appeal to them. And it always won't appeal to the more academic purists who will say, listen, if I am if I want to find that ancient history, I'm going to f read ancient history, and that's it. Um, and it always won't appeal to them. But there are a lot of, there's a lot of people in the center for whom it will appeal to. And I agree with you, it's growing. I, and as I can foresee in the future, I think it will grow precisely for this reason. People like the sophisticated, multifaceted, you know, interesting, curious, um, innovative form of Tanakh study. And, you know, I think there's an enormous amount of potential, certainly for educating young people, and also just, of of keeping and retaining interest among adults, I I, I think it's going to grow, uh, but nonetheless, it should be thought about, it should be critiqued, it should be ruminated over, um, like like any set of ideas. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, one thing about it also, um, I feel that even like you mentioned the rationalist versus mysticism, uh, or let's put it into a different context. Let's say Haredi versus modern Orthodox. I feel like this method does have a potential to creep into the Haredi world. Um, I do. And I actually see it because when 
when it's presented in a way where the fact that it's out of the box is not so much said, it's not so much pronounced, and you you let's say just dress it as a normal you know drasha. I actually see that like Haredi people, they're they 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 really love it, you know. And like if you take Rabbi Foreman and you give Rabbi Foreman and you just bring him to just a, a regular yeshivish guy, maybe Haredi, but let's call it a yeshivish guy, right? And he listens to an idea from Foreman. He doesn't understand all the things that are behind it. He's just you know the idea with the with the presentation, everything. They love it. He's 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 really really able to to connect because. The Gushman said more than just being a method, it, it talks to the soul. Torah Adam, like you're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so I do think that it has potential, if people can get past certain barriers, of really opening up to a wider sector. My opinion. I could be wrong. I could be very wrong. I, um, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think it raises the intriguing possibility of having a sort of Haredi translator of the Gush method. So, so, it, yes. could, it could be that you'll have... I don't know, maybe someone like uh, Shmuley Phillips or one of these people who you've yes, had, a, yes. who sort of dresses it a bit. Yeah, yeah dresses it a bit, who straddles the two worlds and is able to, to to sort of put it in a way, in a manner that's palatable for more Haredi, more Yeshivish audience. I wonder if we'll see maybe a rise of like art scroll dressed versions. I of was it. thinking that. Yeah. I was thinking about that as you were saying. I really think that that is a real possibility. It is that good and it is, it, it's, 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 it's an incredible not just in terms of the method itself, but the ideas that are being produced through the method is just incredible sometimes. Um, so I think that it has potential, you know, to really grow as we're saying. And I just wanted to mention, if, if, if our listeners have not listened to JJ's podcast, the podcast of Jewish ideas, for Jewish ideas or of? Of Jewish ideas. Of Jewish, I apologize. Okay. Creative name. Podcast of Jewish <laughs> ideas. Um, they are you guys are missing out. I've listened to quite a few. Um, it is it is high level, very very intellectual, and uh, the conversations are 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 extremely well done. Um, and the topics are amazing. The guests are amazing. Please listen to his podcast. And you also have an upcoming book, which we hope to have you back on again for yes. time. Yes, thank you very much, and I, I really appreciate this. And uh, you know. I appreciate what you guys are doing as well. So uh, I hope we're, we're all very successful in what we do. Amen. Thank you. We thank appreciate you, thank everything. Thank you. Tov. I had a lot of fun with this. Me thank too. You. See you. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Before we go, we want to thank our Patreon supporters by name. Those are the supporters that are helping make this show happen because, frankly, Bensi and I are full-time workers who don't really have so much time on our hands because we have families, we have kids, and it's just a passion project that got way bigger than we expected. 
So we're dedicating more time to this and obviously our production value up until this point hasn't been great considering that we filmed this in Bensi's basement using a green screen and a crappy little microphone and not such great equipment to be honest. I'm sure you all realize that. So we are hoping to up our quality and get better equipment and part of that process is going to be due to you guys, the listeners and supporters. If you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Judaism, you will see all the different tiers of ways you can help us out. So first of all, we want to thank our super patron, Jordan Carmilli, our platinum patron, Craig Gordon, our gold patrons, David Chay Abramchayev, Laser Cohen, Travis Kruger, Vasily Volkov, silver patrons, Ellen Fleischer, Daniel Maksumov, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Wasserman. Thank you all for supporting the show, and we hope you guys enjoy. <laughs> 